Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. So welcome, Wayne. Um, I'm going to give the, uh, the, the, uh, the typical warning for everybody that uh, nothing that we talk about is investment advice. If you're going to get that, get that from capable people, likely not on this call. And uh, we're going to have a wide ranging conversation that can go lots of ways and, and we want to keep it that way. Uh, it's also a happy hour type of scenario. So I am sipping a nice a bourbon, a, a basil Hayden uh, bourbon today. I know it's a little earlier on the West Coast. So Wayne, you might not be uh, not be doing it. Adam, Adam looks like he's got the straight yeah, water going. Just, I don't yeah. I don't know what's going on. I'm between drinks, you know. Yeah. Ooh, so. Mark at the clothes. He's got no excuse. On one side, it's never too early on the West Coast, but. Yes, it Agreed. is too early for me. <laughs> Agreed. I'm, I'm at this stage in my life where I've got three kids going to three different directions that can come home at any time. And so you got to be at least able to go and pick them up and, and drop them off different places and, and remain at least. You've got to be of sane mind. Manageably sober for, yeah, exactly, yeah. to stay out of trouble. So, uh, yeah. It's, uh, I remember when those excuses were just excuses back in the day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now you sort of give them some sort of validity as if they're reasons Gospel. anyway i know yeah. that's true well let's jump into the fun stuff here agreed we, we got we've got the uh the uh the one of one of the gurus of of the tail trade here with us so and and i think something that is on the minds of a lot of folks with respect to uh their portfolios and and uh stepping beyond the pale of uh potential sort of traditional sources of diversification so um you know, I know Adam, you had some thoughts or wanted to go in a particular direction. So maybe. I'll- well, no, I mean, I just think it's good to let Wayne introduce himself and introduce Logica yeah, yeah. and maybe his role there. And then we can um, spin out from there. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Thank but you. Yeah, I, I'd also say before we start with that spectacular rendition of, of Wayne's uh, history, I just want to remind everybody to uh, like and share and do all the fun stuff with these things so that we can keep these going. And if you like Wayne, leave a review. And if, if you don't like Wayne, leave <laughs> that's oh perfect God. we lost mike let's move on <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm uh, backstage i'm no. going back and forth backstage on stage anyway that's right. away we go. Wayne, give us your spiel yeah keep the don't like reviews a bit shorter than the likes and uh, we're, we're <laughs> good with that yeah so i'm wayne uh wayne himmelstein i run um logica i'm the i guess chief invest investment officer um I've been trading since uh, 1995. I started out as a prop trader, um, traded equities, traded options, uh, and learned my way um, through the capital markets at at, at a prop desk um, and left to start my first hedge fund in, what was it, 1999, 2000, somewhere around there, um, which was the end of the great bull market in 1990. 99 and the beginning, of course, of the 2000 correction. So uh, I got the tail end of two very interesting markets. And that, um, I think, not only taught me a lot uh, as my out-of-the-gate hedge fund launched back then, uh, but it informed my future uh, into the uh, the uncertainties of the market, the fragility of the market, the uh, inherent negative skew in the market, all the stuff that people worry about when, you, um, when your first business or launch of a hedge fund, it goes from the best year on record, 99, to the, one of the worst corrections in 2000, you kind of take that in and absorb that and say, okay, I have to live my life as a, you know, or my career 
understanding that this is what I'm going to be prone or this is what uh, the industry is going to be prone to or I have to prepare for this. So all of my thinking, therefore, was was based around how do I how do I manage in, in that level of uncertainty, um, went on to uh, run a fund for several years um, and then another fund in a very interesting inefficiency I found in the in the insurance pricing space, also kind of risk inefficiencies. And then in 2011, uh, launched Logica, which uh, I've been running since that time. Uh, and uh, so today our focus is um, long volatility, uh, which goes back to the beginnings of my career. It's when uh, it's kind of my, my whole thesis, and many of you have, have, have seen me on Twitter or heard me speak. And uh, really, I, I, I love the side of the market that is um, I, I just t- tweeted about this yesterday, actually, nonlinearity, right? And the fact that uh, there's big moves to be made and they come around when least expected. So uh, the way to take advantage of that is optionality. Uh, and in my mind, I don't like necessarily calling the direction of the market. So I like to be agnostic to ups or downs, but use optionality or convexity to take advantage of more extreme moves. And I think what's working in our favor at Logica is that these extreme moves are happening more and more um, over the course of time, 2018, uh, I, re- I remember December of 18 versus Jan of 19 was the down 12%, up 12%, you know, month of December, month of Jan. And so you see these incredible V's in the market. And of course, come Feb, March of 2020, that one of the biggest, fastest downs we've all ever seen in our lifetimes. And by the way, we're at new highs. And it's only a couple of months later, or not a couple, but close enough to say, this is just ridiculous movement in the market. And uh, in my opinion, ideal for optionality and taking advantage of, of those kind of moves. So that's the hopefully a good summary for you guys. And let's go on with whatever, wherever direction you want to go. Great. Yeah. So you, you joined up with, um, with Mike Green when and for what reason? We've heard Mike's version of, of how that happened. But what, what, coming through your prism, how did that partnership arise? Yeah. So, um, funnily enough, we initially met on Twitter, uh, which is a really cool, um, thing. I, I, I love that, that fin twit space. Uh, and so Mike just reached out to me. We, uh, I tweet a lot of stuff that's interesting. And, uh, of course, uh, if you have the same mindset or philosophy, you, you tend to see the people that, that, that resonate with you. Uh, so Mike saw that and he reached out and said, Hey, let's, let's talk. You know, we're, we're both thinking the same stuff. You, you obviously know what you're doing, talking about. I know what I'm talking about. So we, we should have a conversation. Uh, that was back in uh, early 2019, something like that. So at the time, I was running um, the tail uh, the tail risk product, uh, which is again long vol but more short tilted. So um, uh, it was against a portfolio of, of market neutral uh, exposures. Uh, so market neutral has negative skew to it, uh, although it's conceptually neutral to markets. When markets collapse, market neutrals tend to uh, ha- tend to go with the market a little bit, right? So their their beta is asymmetric. They can be beta neutral for the moment, but they get asymmetric when markets really fall. So I was handling the lo- the long vol piece of of, of a broader portfolio, uh, offsetting to that, and wanted to at the time had just spun out to say, hey, I want to do this not offsetting to a portfolio I'm facing, uh, but as an independent product. And and so when Mike and I met, I was telling him, hey, I'm just in the midst of, or I just spun out. Uh, fortunately for me, I just spun out in the end of 2018. So I was there to participate in the, in the December sell-off. Uh, and of course, it did nicely. Um, but so uh, I'm telling Mike that this is what I'm doing. And concurrently, he was telling me that 
um, he had uh, also an options portfolio uh, at, at where he was, which is Teal Macro. He was he was running their 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 desk here in L.A. Um, I guess out of San Francisco, but um, he, he was he was overseeing that. Uh, and then uh, I guess in that conversation, uh, the easy way to put it is we just totally hit it off, right? So a, a half an hour potential coffee ended up a four hour, you know, we love each other. Uh, and it's just really neat when it goes that way. And it, the, the, the synergy was obvious. And so we said, let's keep on talking. And what can we do? Um, some months later, Mike approached me saying, um, uh, not necessarily saying, but recommending that if I'm going to be spinning out, why leave it as a, as a uh, short tilt? Why have a pure tail risk product when um, the market is, of course, fragile in both directions or can move uh, in, of great magnitude in both directions, why not do an absolute return product? And uh, so as soon as he said that, I thought, hey, that's, of course, that's much more interesting. It's much more um, widely applicable to people. There's, there's, a, there's a probably a broader market for absolute return than there is for pure tail risk. Um, and the, the, the thinking of that was fairly easy for us to achieve because it was simply saying, you know, we already have a long and a short book, so let's just increase the weighting of our long book, right? And it, it, we quite literally had a two-to-one uh, short long, so we just make it two-to-two, right? Or for easy purposes, one-to-one long and short. Um, and therein became an absolute return product. And so as soon as I shared with Mike the, the results of, of that and what that would look like, which was easy for us to do because we were already running all those, all those models, it was just a matter of re-weighting it to the lo- a little bit longer uh, or long-tilted. So as soon as I showed Mike what that outcome was, he said, you know, that's, that's incredible. I want to, I want to do that with you. Like, and concurrently he had been running also a straddle, which was a, of course the, the same expression, but he was doing it in more of a, um, not naive, but a, a simpler version of what we had done, uh, at Logica. We had multiple models running inside that were collectively, uh, expressing this long straddle approach in an absolute return format. And so, um, the, the commentary was, Hey, this is, doing what I'm doing in philosophy, um, and it's exactly what I'd want to be doing, and it's quite a bit more complex, and and, 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 and it is really well built, so let's do it together. Um, and so I, I'm shortening you know, a year of conversation, but at the end of that, we said it, it became, let's be partners, let's do it together. We both have the same idea, literally the same portfolio, and we'll be more powerful as a team than as independents. Um, so here we are. And, and that, I, I think it all came together in the end of 19. And then we joined formally in like January of 20. Uh, so it's been almost a year now, which is really exciting. Um, and my last comment is, although it's only been only a year, uh, we, we talk almost every day. We're, we're, uh, the, the initial half hour conversation that became four hours, um, is, was, completely representative of how well we continue to get along and to share insights and collaborate. And we, we oftentimes have the same philosophy, but different ways of looking at it. He's got a deeper fundamental background. I've got a deeper quant background. So the synergies just keep on expressing themselves and being uh, really powerful. And we love it. It's a, such a good partnership and, and team. Well, that, that so, story sounds uh, fairly familiar. Huh? It's, it's like, true, but we, we keep looking for partners well, we, that we can really connect with. Yeah. <laughs> I see three of you on my screen. So I, something's working well. We, the night we I met you two, you guys were already partners, but it was like we we saw each other. We saw each other across the room. Oh, and you and I, Rod. Yeah, of course. And, and, and we had well, that that's, same that's effect. Me and you, Wayne, but also me and Mike and Adam. Yeah. Like, I met them in 2011, yeah. and that night we were up till 4 a.m. and we were partners the next yeah. morning. Yeah. And then with you, oh, that's it was funny. like we argued a little bit about machine learning. 
we did philosophy yeah. and uh and we were mike and i were there in california for sam harris uh that's right i remember and, yeah uh, yep. and we talked about him because i know you know him so that's yeah we definitely hit it off intellectually as well so um yeah, looking forward to the, to the conversation sorry adam i interrupted your question though no no all, all good i was just wondering because i i'm trying to square the circle you, you sort of you talk about the fact that the strategy um the logic strategy tends to be focused on the you know the having convexity to more extreme movements in the market and the absolute return objective right because i think of absolute return as certainly being um on average uncorrelated to the market but also i think the investor expectation is sort of steady steady returns you know and and so what is the profile of a strategy that generally resembles a straddle and doesn't really have a long or short bias? And does it resonate with the general uh, uh, perception of what an absolute return fund should look like? Sure. Um, so multi-part question, I'll, I'll try to take it in pieces. Um, so absolute return, of course, is the idea that there should be returns absolutely, not relatively, right? Um, the thing is that no matter what we are, uh, in absolute terms, we're relative to something. So um, really, it's, it's just saying we, we an absolute return uses should use a different source of alpha than uh, market direction, right? There should be alpha, not beta. It's as simple as that to absolute return, right? That doesn't mean that there's not some sensitivity to what the absolute return is trading, right? So whatever is your source of alpha is also going to be your source of vol or downside, right? So in our world, we're absolute return in volatility terms, right? We trade volatility and a little bit of directionality, um, but we're absolute return because we should have nothing to do with what with the with the ordinary direction of the market, um, uh, and so and, and we're absolute return because we should generally make money, right? Um, and so. Uh, and uh, I guess people could call that all weather or whatever you want to call it, but that doesn't mean by by any standard that you don't have sensitivity to some source of volatility. In ours, ironically, our source of volatility is volatility, right? So being long vol means when vol goes up, we do better, and when vol goes down, we do worse. We're you know recent in recent months, vol has been crushing. It's been coming off the of course the COVID highs, and there's been a steady downtrend in vol. So we're long something that is literally declining. Lining, right? Um, that makes absolute returns harder in such an environment. So the thing for us, given that we are that style, given how much we believe in long vol as a necessary asset class, the name of the game in that space is to manage the risk while the thing you're long is going down so that you can be there for when it's going to go up, right? And, 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 and it, obviously, you want to make more on the ups and, and contain on the downs. And then you become a well-traded absolute return. So but you that, guys that have a multi-strat too, right? Like you run a long equity book with certain characteristics against your your options overlay. I thought I got that from the way that Mike sort of described the yeah. strategy, right? Yeah. So before I jump into that, and so I'll, I'll answer you the long equity book piece. I just there's one more piece I want to answer on your last question, which I think is very relevant. Um, so you were talking about absolute return, and you said you used a key word that I want to hone in on. You said shouldn't absolute return be steady? 
right? Um, so there are different types of absolute returns. Being If you're in absolute return in pure equities, then I guess the objective is steadiness, maybe. Um, in At the same time, for us for, in volatility trading, I would not say the objective of our, our absolute return is to be steady. It's to be, it's to have more positive returns than negatives, right? But it's, it's so it's absolute, it's un, unrelated to the market, but it's not necessarily steady. Why is it not steady? Because we're right skewed, because we have convexity. So a return profile that looks like, just as an example, plus minus five bips for three months and then up 7%, is an absolute return over four months. It didn't come steadily. It came in a pop, right? And that should be the expectation of an absolute return that trades convexity. That's, mm-hmm. a different, that's a different structure of absolute return than pure equities that don't have the uh, element of convexity to them. So I, to finish off what you were first asking, I want to relay that point. No, it's a really good point. Yeah. And, and that, that certainly wasn't, I wasn't implying that, uh, that absolute return only should um, apply to funds that do deliver steady returns month in, month out. They tend to be the extremely negatively skewed strategies right, that, exactly. that deliver that yep. type of return profile. But exactly. uh, it is interesting because I, I think the perception, if you were to talk to many institutional investors or even or many advisors or investors who seek absolute return, I think the expectation tends to be more of a steady profile. And so there's got to be some kind of educational curve to help people climb to understand exactly the type of character that they're buying and why it's complementary to some of the other types of absolute return funds that they might also be considering. Yeah. I I mean, I find that the, it's a good point. It's, it's relative to what investor expectations are. Right. So I find that there are, of course, we all find this because we're in the business of asset management, that there's a tremendous spectrum of, of investor awareness and, um, you know, I guess sophistication, all of the above. And so some investors, uh, we have investors now that you know said last month, why were you down? And then another group of investors said, wow, you're outperforming your peers. You're doing great, right? Of course you're down. Vol is down a lot, right? As an example. And so they, they put you, some put you in relative space because uh, many, let's say multi-strats realize that they that so much of their portfolio is negative skew. So they need some right skew long vol positioning in there. And they can't expect that to be up when the other side of their book is up because that's why they have you there, right? Because uh, you're going to be up a lot more when the other side of their book is down. And so that's the whole point is finding the right investors for what it is that you do. Uh, and I guess for us, I feel like that's kind of easy because most of the landscape is is seeking consistent with negative skew, right? Not seeking negative skew, but ends results in negative skew. Whereas we're saying we could be also pretty consistent and PS positive skew at the times everything else is cracking. So um, that makes it, of course, an easier way to be absolute in, in a much larger absolute universe. Well, it's an interesting absolute strategy because there was a tweet that, I, that you recently had about the metrics used in the industry to try to find good managers, right? Yes. Try to find uncorrelated sure. managers, try to find managers with High sharp, you know. Yeah, the highest sharp you can find. I imagine that, you know, every alternative fund has these issues. But I imagine that your profile makes it particularly difficult to be found in certain filters for absolute type return managers. I'm curious to speak a little bit about that. Your tweet itself was um, these beta sharp correlation alpha as if 
people talk about it as a fluent in finance lingo. They're all based on broken assumptions of linearity, uh, which markets are not and which undermines the lot. Right. So maybe yes. talk a little bit about those metrics and how you guys tackle that. Yeah, sure. So I mean, you started out with Sharp. That's the greatest place to start. Um, uh, so Sharp, especially for a fund like ours, which is right skew for any fund that's right skew or long vol, Sharp is um, a horrible metric. Why? Because the denominator is vol, right? So the higher your vol, the worse your Sharp, right? Well, what if your vol is all upside vol? <laughs> so in, in that sense, our Sharp goes down when we do great. What, what's that about? That's literally upside down. We're being penalized because we make more than we lose. That doesn't make any sense, right? So in that, in that perspective, any fund that has higher upside vol than downside vol is one that should never use Sharp, um, literally because you're going to be penalized by that metric. Uh, Sortino would be significantly better. Uh, but all, so all of that is that. So that's one just easy answer. The second point is nonlinearity in general just which is the way markets and maybe not the S&P index, which is tends to be as close to normally distributed as we can see. The tails are a little bit fat. But if you go down to any underlying, um, any constituent of the S&P or any many, many, many other asset classes, you see lots of fat tails, lots of skew. Right. And so in all of this environment, there's there, there is much more nonlinearity and therefore the metrics you use are, they are, are stop making sense. They were alpha, beta are designed with the assumption of uh, Gaussian, of uh, an IID, uh, in, independent, identically distributed uh, uh, um, uh, data, right? So, and oh, I mean, I, there's so much here that I want to keep on talking about, but I have to try to condense it into one. I mean, we're talking about time series, right? So it's introducing the element of time where, uh, and, and we're introducing series that are, that are discontinuous, that have gaps in between. Like when the market closes at night, it opens the next morning. So it, all, you summarize all that and you just look at these metrics that people are relying on for so long to say, is the A better than B? And I'm, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, why, are, why are we still there? Uh, mathematics and statistics and all these fields have advanced so much in decades, right? You and I, as you mentioned, Rod, when we started talking, it was about machine learning when we first met. Uh, so that's all going on. So why are all the big institutions still just lining up your sharp and your beta and saying, okay, we like you or we don't? I mean, I just, it doesn't make any sense to and me. It's, just, uh, it's and, those and metrics, I, you know, how yeah. you calculate sharp, whether it's on a monthly basis or on a daily basis, has completely different, right? Of course, of, of course. The, the original sharp, sharp was a single period sharp. So you, you know, you, and it, it doesn't norm, it doesn't scale with time because the, the, the numerator, of course, is return. The denominator is vol. So return and vol move the scale differently. Vol scales at, 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 at of course, root, root T and return is geometric. So if you, Move it out. It's just going to be a completely different sharp if you look at your daily sharp versus your annual sharp. So which is your sharp? Which should you be looking at? I, it, it, and so if you have to start putting metrics on a sheet and then next to that metric, an asterisk explaining why this metric is you know, good and, and what should be ignored with it, then why use that metric? Um, and of course, we have to because that's what everyone's looking at. And that was the point you of my tweet. And, and it, and you kind of have sad to. That you have a program that on its own may have a, a small sharp ratio. And in fact, Quest, uh, guys, I can't remember what the guy's name, but his, his Quest, he's a managed futures guy, is big on, doesn't matter that I have a low sharp ratio. 
put me together with another portfolio and I'll show you that I can give your portfolio a higher sharp ratio than something. Totally. That well, that dovetails with, yeah. with yeah. the question that is obviously prompted by this whole conversation, which, and we obviously have some thoughts on that, but, but how, how would you, if you were boss, how would you have people measure performance? You know, if you had to condense performance into one or two or three statistics for parsimony, what would they be? So I think um, I'm going to have to challenge the question and say, like, when you start out saying, if you had to condense performance into a single summary metric, and that's why I say you can't. That's the problem. You can't condense it into a metric. So for us, and I, I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but it doesn't condense into a metric because they all behave differently, right? I, I go with the easiest example is if you're just uh, short out of the money puts, right? Your metric is a high sharp, you get a high sharp, you get incredible alpha, right? And, and then suddenly you blow up, right? So it all has to be in context, that's the point, right? I agree. And, so what yeah. about what about portfolio sharp? Right? Like the, well, this, so portfolio the sharp portfolio sharp, if you put y- yeah. these funds together or you know if you weight these funds optimally even though the individual constituents may not have high sharp ratios and we may have some nonlinear strategies in there the portfolio sharp ends up being very high. So totally. is that a reasonable place to go? Or at least start. Uh, sure. So that's what uh, something that Rod touched on a moment ago, which is that the different parts are meant to offset each other, and that's where I love that. I think you guys are there too in your the way you design your portfolios. That's where I I start from. Is the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? You you could have a negative returning thing in there, i.e., long puts next to your long equities. And people say, well, but you're losing money on that piece of your portfolio every month. Yes, and I'm really excited to lose that money uh, because it's going to save my equity downturn, right? Um, and so that's the point: is the, the the whole is greater than the sum. So in that, to, so to that point, if you have a portfolio that you know in context is well balanced, right, and you could kind of see that in the portfolio skew, right? Um, years ago, in trying to when I when I started out. Uh, sharing my background where I, I was had built a long vol book offsetting to a market neutral book, right? So the market neutral book, they always look good and high sharp until the negative skew event. So sticking a long vol book next to it, you, you kind of ate away at, let's just say, five, 10 bips of return every month. But then that one month that market neutral was down eight, it's actually still up 60 bips, right? Because the long vol kicked in. So that was that, that, made the total portfolio distribution more symmetric, right? And that's how I looked at it. I said, over here, I've got a right skew. Over here, I've got a left skew. And I layered on all these distributions on top of each other. And then the portfolio distribution looked as normal as could be. And that got me excited, not because I believed it was truly a normal distribution, but because I knew that the the parts were summarized to create something that was more um, uh, reliable and, and where the deviations would be uh, what we would expect because it had offsetting pieces inside. In that place, you could use a sharp. You could use an alpha and a beta. But now you want to ask, who, who is being so thoughtful to have that kind of portfolio all the time that you could just assume that that's been done? And so that's the problem is why you can't start with a metrics. First, you got to find out is what's inside their book. 
And then based on that, now what metrics can I use? So that goes back to my answer is there's no one for all. There's what do you do and how do you do it? What's inside? How are you generating your alpha? Where's your uh, sources of vol? Now let me decide what metrics to use. Um, all that aside, I like to see the most information possible. I like to work with the total distribution. That's what tells me the most. Look at the shape of the distribution of what you're doing, and I can quickly tell whether you're long vol or short vol or you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, 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 and therefore what metrics might be worse or better. One of the, the, the tricks or challenges, I think, with uh, positive skew strategy is, is that the number of observations where the positioning in the portfolio pays off is necessarily relatively small, right? I mean, you've got this sort of challenge where, where negatively skewed strategies tend to have a lot of, like if, if you observe any random two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight year period, they, they tend to look better. And then you've got that one year or one month or one two week period, like we had in 2020, that completely flips the sign or flips the perception of yeah. those two different, how, how do you overcome that small sample challenge? Um, well, we, we, uh, avoid 2020s. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I guess the easy answer is we assume that there's always going to be, I mean, that's why I'm a long vol investor. Cause in my mind before 2020, I assumed there was going to be a 2020. I, of course, I, I'm not saying I predicted a pandemic that's ridiculous. Uh, but I, you know, there's actually a funny enough, um, a, a real vision that Mike and I did together in, I think it was in November of was it 18 or 19? I don't remember, but um, it was, yeah, it was, it, I think it was after the December 18 uh, correction. So it was somewhere in, in 2019, maybe October, November of 2019. Um, and the, Mike was saying that um, you know, the, one of the questions was very similar to what you're asking uh, was that, uh, hey, an events just happened, uh, which was the December event, might it be many years till the next one? So, you know, why do people need you as much now or need long vol as much now? And he, he didn't believe that because he he agrees with the idea, but that was his question as the as the host for, for others to learn. And my answer was, because you just never know when the next thing's going to come. Like, and, and like, you, you, there, you, there's no excuse for not always being long vol. That, that's was literally the headline of my premise in, in late 19 and then comes February, March of 20. So I'm not saying that I was right, but I was, right? I was because we never know when the next thing is coming. Uh, and, and so uh, to me, when you say, how do you measure? I say, you always assume that that next thing is around the corner, right? Um, and, you know, when people sit and say, oh, this is the worst event in, in 50 years, I'm like, uh, to me, uh, it's, well, uh, not, not that it was expected to be so bad, but if it wouldn't have been this, if it wouldn't have been a 30% down move in two weeks, there would have been a 20% sell-off on something else and then followed by a 10. And right. So the point is that you take those assumptions, you create a, uh, a or not, not a, create a path, but you, you simulate a path that says there will be um, some set of down moves over the next five years. It might be three, te three, ten percent, one twenty. You know, I'm probably not assuming another two weeks, thirty percent down. That's probably not happening again next week. But if you simulated enough of those and you ran some form of Monte Carlo, but not looking at what's happened, not taking the time series and, and just jumbling it, but saying these are the potential downs that can occur. You're, you're then to me, that's what one should model to. 
Um, and so that's the history that we always not, 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 sorry, not the history. That's the future that we always assume, which is not our history, but what anything that can be. Uh, sorry, I don't know if that fully answers what you're asking, but that's how I think about it. No, I'm I, I really, I was just trying to give you a chance to sort of to speak to this because I, th- I think this is a, a challenge of optics, right? For, for allocators who are looking, even if you're an informed allocator and you recognize that the biggest risk is the one that you haven't anticipated, the one that's not in the, the in history, in, in your historical sample. Um, right. And you want to build in this type of resilience. It's difficult sometimes to be able to, 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 to pitch this to the investment committee or the board or, you know, most people don't think in probability space and they don't think in sort of catastrophe space. And sure. um, so it's, I, I just think it's always an interesting I see. Optic, yeah. optical, optical when, challenge. Yeah. When you talked about your example of the market neutral fund only giving up four basis points a month in order to be able to offset that 8%. I mean, that's the right. pitch kind of, if you have an elevator pitch, that's the long ball elevator pitch, right? But the day-to-day living that is not four basis points a month. It's you're up 1%, you're up half a percent, you're down seven or something to that, depending on what, you know, what you're doing. But there's, there's a, there's a lot of volatility. It's not, it's not like a, an insurance Smooth. premium they pay. So sure. I believe that even like, look, we, helped bring some products in, to Canada long, long ago, which was the S&P 500 plus tail protection. And the pure fact of underperforming at times or being different certain months from the S&P 500 was enough for that thing not to survive. Right? The idea was S&P 500 minus a couple of basis points, and then you don't get the, the drawdown. You're actually not co- as correlated or sometimes not at all correlated to the S&P 500 as you wait. Sure. So that, I think sure. that's the biggest challenge for people being able to stick to something that is a long ball product. How do you handle that? Well, well, yeah, I, w- I wanted to <clears throat> more succinctly. What are you What are you seeing as the behavioral challenges? We saw California a- abandon. We saw Alberta abandon. At the same time, in another context, we saw Wimbledon collect a massive insurance premium on having insurance on a pandemic for the Wimbledon Open. Right. And so, how how do you differentiate, or how do you help the end investor, whether they be institution or retail client? Uh, get through the the tracking error, if you will, because the yeah. tracking error can manifest in a number of different ways. And what are you seeing live, real time, as you are operating as a purveyor of these types of products, complementing other uh, portfolios? Sure, no, sure, yeah. So I mean, for us, it all starts with the, the broad education, which is what we, we believe people should know by now. And I, the best example of it is 08, right? There is what everybody's running their portfolio assumptions on, which is, of course, realized vol. And then there's the future, which is unrealized vol, right? And so everybody lives in this land of realized vol is what I'm going to um, optimize to. And we're saying, no, you, you need to think about unrealized vol because that's what always hurts, right? And the single best example of that, of course, is 08, right? Realized vol was the, the, the tail variance of mortgages and let alone was nowhere near unrealized, right? For whatever chain of reasons, we don't have to go over that. But so th- this, is the, this is an educational starting point of, of saying, how, how can you depend on realized vol when you know, so much wacky stuff happens. And so there's many ways to say that. I, I mean, we have, you know, you asked about an elevator pitch. We don't, it, for us, it's not as much an elevator pitch, but it's 
educating on this idea. We wrote a paper many years ago on the on the problem with Sharpe ratio and how it doesn't take into account uh, asymmetry involved. It's called the illusion of skill, right? So putting out that paper, having people read that and think about it and realize that, yeah, there there is a problem in my portfolio. I've always been looking at Sharpe and it's underestimating my risk. You know, so let's talk to the guys who wrote a paper about that, right? So that's starting, and I know you guys agree with that. That's what you're, you're big on educating. So we educate. Now comes down to the bigger question is, as much as you educate people, they, how do they deal with that month-to-month pain? Let's call it that, right? You're, you're, you're still, you know, S&B's up and you're down. What's wrong? Like, what's happened? And so our, our goal there was to design something that wouldn't have that pain. And that's where Mike's contribution into my thinking was very helpful, where I was going out to the word world with a tail risk product that would have that consistent bleed. Um, it would just have really nice convexity when it when needed. Mike's point was, let's make this absolute return. That's what I shared earlier. So that's what we've achieved is having something that can actually make money with the market, right? It doesn't every month, to your point, but it more reliably does. Uh, and that goes back to the question, Adam, you asked um, quite a while ago is about the equity book or that piece of that portfolio. So w- w- that design is is there so that we make money, quote, the rest of the time while we're waiting for the event, right? So we're not just long a straddle. Um, well, we are long a straddle, but the, the downside, the down caps of the straddle is S&P downside, right? So we always have S&P puts on and we're trading them to try to buy them cheaper, sell them more. We're scalping. We're doing a bunch of stuff to try to make money while we're holding S&P puts, okay? And so what that means is, as a reference, can can us trading around puts, and let's say you have a portfolio of S&P puts at different strikes, and you know on one day you sell a few of these, and the next day you buy a few of those, and, you, you, and, and so you're literally market making or scalping, um, can that beat a naive straddle or a naive put? Can, can your trading alpha overcome a little bit of the, the cost of holding that put? In our case, it does. So we have some alpha on the downside by, by scalping, by gamma scalping. On the upside, we infuse a, a, a different concept to take advantage of market up capture, and that is that portfolio. So go back 25 years, my first hedge fund I, t- I told you about, it was a market neutral uh, StatArb portfolio. But it, w- it was unique to the world of StatArb because typical StatArb is, uh, says that things should revert. It's mean reversionary, right? Meaning, like, let's, let's uh, describe StatArb in a simple framework that two names, let's say Coke and Pepsi, are two standard deviations apart, and they just move to three sigmas apart. So the stat arbist says, oh, that should revert back down, right? We sh- that should collapse. So they go long the under and short the over, and three sigmas should go back to zero in, in its dispersion, right? So I, at that time, being a long vol thinker, thought to myself, well, not all three sigmas go back to zero. Some threes go to four, Right there, there is the stuff, and this is goes back to the nonlinearity. There is stuff out there that just keeps on going, and you you might call that trending or momentum. So I, I launched my launch of my first hedge fund was a mean expansion stedarb. I try to find the pairs that were three sigma apart that would go to five sigma apart. Right where the anomaly like would the keep pain, on going. I, I love the pain. Right, yeah. I love managing the pain. Right, You're right. Okay, go on. Yes. So, but if you think about it, in every Stedar book out of 100 pairs, they all have, let's say, 10, 20 pairs that, quote, go wrong, that keep on going. 
Those are their losers, and 80% of their book are their winners that do revert. So my thought was, how do I just find those losers of theirs? Like, what is it about those pairs that keep on spreading, right, or keep on widening? Uh, and so I found a tool or I built a system that honed in on those, right? So I, so I had that model already. Shoot forward 20 years, I said, well, this is perfect for what I'm doing now, because it's long vol or long convexity in 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 equities, right? So it, it's it's the same system. Um, I've had I've been around it for decades, um, and and so what it does is it scans the S and P five hundred for names that are that are moving that are expected to continue moving dramatically. Like where three sigma goes to five sigma uh, to, to to simplify. It doesn't look at standard deviation, but just to simplify the idea, um, where you're going to ignore the Bollinger band, right, and say it's meaningless. Um, so. In its ability to identify names that are going to continue exploding, that becomes a perfect uh, instrument to, or, or a perfect um, framework to lay on a convex instrument, i.e. a call option, right? If you have information about an equity that says or that it's going to go up a lot, you don't buy the equity, buy a call, right? That's, that's going to give you a bigger payoff for the information you're, you're armed with, right? You have a view so on in that sense, right. what's that? If you have a view on the magnitude, not just if you have direction. a view on the magnitude and, and the timing of that move, if I knew, if you knew that some name was going to beat earnings in the next two weeks, right? That and by twenty percent, then buy a call, don't buy the name, right? So this is not earnings based, but this is looking at price behavior and saying th- this basket has an outsized ability to outperform the S and P in a fixed time frame. With a bigger magnitude, wonderful, buy call options. So the long side of our straddle takes positions via call optionality in that basket and therefore has an ability to outperform the S&P and overcome the the, the downfall, the Vega drag or the theta drag while the market is going up. Hence, we can, quote, make money while we wait. Uh, And that's a long-winded way of saying it, but these are all the, the design of the portfolio and saying um, or, or describing ourselves as absolute return was precisely to overcome what you're talking about. I don't want to bleed every month. What I want right. to do is make money with the market going up, and then I have a little bit of a hurdle on my call portfolio to overcome when the market starts collapsing. But that's and worth it. And so has this construction led to a portfolio, an absolute return portfolio that during the drawdowns, you're not finding necessarily that, that positive upside but rather covering the losses of your long portfolio, like is it is is it now as an absolute return product still can still be seen as a tail protection fund for somebody else in a traditional portfolio? It, it can, or is it a- more, absolutely? Yeah, because so it's more than the losses because of the asymmetry you create. Exactly, because of the asymmetry of the two sides, right? Just go with a very simple example: is you have a, a you spend a dollar on a put and a dollar on a call. Right, so market drops twenty percent. Your dollar call is zero, right? You, delta goes to one to point oh one, and your dollar put is twenty bucks. So yes, I lost everything in my long book. I, I I give up. I lost it all, except I made twenty x on my short book. Right, that's the beauty of a straddled approach. Is it is literally not blow upable, right? It is anti fragile to the greatest extent because both sides of your book only start magnifying as the extreme gets worse, right? So therefore, when the market starts cracking on the, on the call side, if you think of it as a V, all you have to, I'm trying to get it in the shape of the camera, uh, all you have to do is start, the, the, the call side starts declining and the put side starts taking off. 
And once you surpass the cost of that calls, you're, you're off to the races. That's how we made roughly 20%-ish in February, March. We still had calls on the books. They just went down quickly. And by definition, the other side went up even more quickly. Um, and so that's, I mean, call that gamma. That's what it is. That's why we love gamma is you, you almost, you know, you're, you're unbreakable. You just have to manage what, what is called the, the, the valley of the, of the straddle, right? Which is well, the area where it doesn't move enough to, to benefit you. So part, part of that also is, is managing along the way. So that yeah. first day happens, are, are you, you're obviously not rebalancing or uh, hedging back to the previous exposures, or are you? I don't know. How, how do you? How how have you guys approached that? How do you let it? How yeah. do you let that run in order to capture that uh, that that very that positive tail. potential tail? Yeah. Um, so that's the magic. I'm going to stop talking now. No, I'm Ooh, uh, <laughs> it's proprietary, Mike. No, no, no. It, it it is, but I can happily share it. I mean, it's there's there's proprietary elements. It's but I'd call that the scalping, right? So. Um, what's kind of cool in concept is w- what we're doing is saying that we don't know, but we're making a probabilistic decision, right? So if you take a set, uh, a, a, um, a matrix of probabilities and, and, and say, well, you know, th- this is how much vol is moved. This is how much the S and P is moved. This is how fast it's moved, right? You have a distribution for each, uh, parameter that you're looking at or, or each variable that you're looking at has a distribution. And so if you take a, a, a joint probability of those events, and, and, and imagine converting that into how much you want to scale out. So said simply, if puts are, are markets falling, your puts are going up and it was a 8% single day. That's a, that's a bigger than, than average day. That's on, on, on the, on the far on the left side of the single day distribution. Right. Um, and then you, and, and so you look across your sets of distributions and jointly that was a, um, there, there's a 70% probability that that's going to reverse tomorrow, right? So that 70% translates to selling seven out of your 100 puts. So you sell seven or whatever number. Maybe that seven's not enough. It's 17, right? The next day is another 4% down move. Well, that, that's not 17. That's selling only 12, but it was one more day. So then you're selling 16, right? So my point is you're taking these different probability sets. You're, you're combining them into a single probability that then scales how much you want to sell out of your position. Uh, and what ends up happening is as the market's falling, you're taking off the table like you would as a trader, but precisely mapped to the joint probability of that event, both in magnitude, in volatility, and in volatile, if that all makes sense. So, are, are um, you scaling on the other side as well? On both sides, both sides yeah. are, are are scaling, and and so yeah. what ends up happening is you end up kind of profiting on one side, and of course uh, building up on the other side, and you buying cheap vol, selling expensive vol, with all your inputs telling you the most probable time to do that, right? Um, and so that 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 is the to me it's it's gamma scalping on steroids, right? Because you're you're t- you're 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 not you're you're moving thoughtfully along the along the path uh, and try to be correctly tilted as it goes. And the best way you can do that is with the probabilities of everything you're looking at. That's, that's how I know how to make a decision. So, so this truly is a, a function of skill. I, I would hope so. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in what way, like, I guess you're asking. No, I, I mean, it, this is an active uh, skill. Like it's not as though, um, although you're looking at probabilistic models and whatnot, I'm, I'm not, I don't think you, you're saying you could boil this down into some sort of, 
index or set of very simple rules or are you or no no i don't think you could i mean right i, I guess you could simplify it by saying he, here's a simple version you know as the market's falling every five percent down sell ten percent of your puts hmm. okay that's a rule you can create that rule yep. but that rule has more chances of getting it wrong than than um honing in on all the variables that you your experience understands matters and then trying to precisely uh, uh, um, put that all together in, 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 a, in a scale that makes sense relative to the position you're holding and right. relative to the rest of your portfolio. So that, to me, is, is skill. That's taking all of yep. your knowledge, it's quantifying it, and using it as a tool to properly scale or scalp uh, as you need to with the way the market's moving. And w- what's also cool about it, this is a, a totally side point, but what's really interesting is you're applying – a, a short vol to a long vol book, right? So we don't ever get short, but by selling off some of our long, we're we're getting more and more short in the sense that we're we're mean reverting against a mean expanding underlying, right? So the instrument is convex; it's pulling up, and you start clipping off the top. You you that is going against the mean expansion. That's going against the convexity. So we're doing that because we're saying this put is now too expensive. We've made mm-hmm. enough money on it. We have to start pulling off the table. So it's introducing a mean reversionary component on top of a mean expansionary portfolio. Right. This and I actually- guess what I'm trying to do is channel the questions that are coming up. We've got one, Corey's, Corey Hofstein, where lies the gotcha after all you know, zero carry is the holy grail? And, and another question after that was, you know, how can we construct trades? Uh, to carry long VIX without the bleed, and I guess that that's what we're digging into here. This is a this is a, a skillful thing that 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 requires um, the type of insights that you're talking about and the types of constant management on both sides of the tail. So it is it is a function of skill that creates the opportunity to carry the 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 long tail exposure either side with reducing the cost. Yeah, there's no buy and hold magic here. I do think that this yeah. is this is actually really an interesting area to dig into. I mean, we, it's funny we just we have our Friday research meetings and uh and today we were discussing pretty well exactly the same thing. So you've got you've got some sort of historical distribution that gives you these conditional probabilities and so you can make some sort of you, you you can say there's a 70% chance of x condition on on y etc and what what I was wondering I mean especially in the context of this sort of tail type strategy where definitionally you are seeking out profits from the type of uh outcomes that haven't occurred in the sample distribution right like that's that's kind of why people buy funds like this because it's it's trying to hedge against the unknown unknowns right and yet you're bringing to bear a an empirical analysis that says you know in in my sample distribution what is the conditional expectation given what we've just observed right and so we had the same discussion today because you know in anytime you you are trying to make decisions based on the empirical sample you're always going to run into a situation where you have an observation that that lies outside of either either to the right tail or the left tail of what you've observed at any time in history. And what should you do in that instance? Should you assume that it lies in sort of 
the same bucket as other extreme events and just sort of extrapolate? Or should you just take, just ignore the signal because you actually have never seen a signal like that. You have no idea what the relationship is. So how do you sort of reconcile this philosophically where you've got, you're trying to hedge against unknown unknowns, but you're, you're managing the positions using conditional relationships from the empirical sample. Sure. Yeah. That's a fantastic question. Um, so, I mean, February, March is the perfect example of that, right? There, there, and no matter what empirical uh, view you had, what, whatever realized observations you looked at, there was never thirty percent down in two weeks. Yeah, right? you're outside of all previous. You're outside of yeah. all um, all data that you've been mining, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. All data you've been processing. Let's say that better. Um, so. That I think that goes back to our earlier discussion on realizer versus unrealizers. We understand, we know that, right? As as you guys do, right? So knowing that you're, and I, I remember when I was a kid, GI Joe, knowing is half the battle, right? Um, and um, so we we understand the realized. We look at the realized and we say, okay, but what's the potential unrealized? That's what I was explaining earlier. Is we have distributions of, you know, what could happen. Right. And, and so one and or another way to think about that is so insurance companies deal with this all the time. Right. Uh, in catastrophes, like could there be three hurricanes in the same state at the, on the same two weeks? Right. Um, and they, they call it extreme value theorem right? or uh, right, EVT. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, in extreme value, it's, it, there's ways you're, you're just digging deeper into this fat tail and say, is there any more information inside the tail? Right. So when, when you summarize all of that as a trader, I summarized all of that to say it means that there's there's more variance that there's more knowledge I don't have than I do right so there's a therefore whatever um, whatever uh, not function but whatever the, the, the prior function I used isn't going to be good here once once you pass the certain point I, we call that in in our model a phase shift when when our model goes through phase shift it literally changes cadence right so. All other times we're, we're, we're trading daily. When we go through phase shift, that says, hey, you're in the tail, right? All bets are off. Ignore all empirical data, right? And so we translate that to we're in phase shift. So what does that have us do? The easy answer is it has us move slower because we don't know. We allow for much wider variance than we've ever seen. Um, so at that point, an 8% move, let's say on, what was it, March 17th, it was like the fourth 8% day in a row, right? Which we had all never seen, four in a row, whatever. I'm, I'm getting the numbers a little off, but just to make the point. Mm-hmm. So on that day, had that been the, the third day, had because we were, we were already in phase shift, had the third 8% down day been in used a, a empirical, we would have sold all remaining puts, but our cadence had had changed because we're in no man's land. So if had we had 40 puts left, we only sold 10, then it's the fourth 8% down day. Now we sell them all. No, slow down. Only sell 20% of what we have remaining, not 80%. Although empirical says sell 80%, right? Um, so the easy answer is we, once again, it's a conditional probability. So we add a new condition, which says, Everything is going to be wider because we're in no man's land. We're in this tail environment. Therefore, slow everything down. And our system uh, in that way adopts or adapts to that environment. And it handles the tails really well. Uh, and what ends up, what, what is the risk of that? The risk of that is you get stuck owning a few puts on that crazy recovery day on March 23rd. S&P is up 12% in a day. And so you have some crush. 
but so instead of having zero puts left, we had 10 out of 100, let's just say, right? These are not the exact numbers. I'm just making the point again. But having 10, we still would have been okay had there been one more down day or two more. Uh, but at that point, we were willing to live with only having 10 left. So I, I hope I've uh, um, really yeah, no, you did. I think you've, and so yeah. on the other side of that as well, yeah. you slow down on the on the call purchasing. Exactly right. You you yeah. hit okay. the nail on the head. Yeah. Exactly right. So, so that yeah. so you've got you've got a little bit of a loss, but you also have a, a lesser bleed on your call purchase. Exactly right. As you're coming down, exactly it snaps back, and then and then there's you get you could have some crush, or you could you know uh, virtually have perfect timing, all all, all of which is fine. Right. But accomplishing the meat of that, the sort of the bell curve meaty part of that move for the the right tail that you're trying to capture is what you're really trying to make sure you nail. Exactly. So and, there's and a little craftsmanship here, right? Oh, like they, I'd say there's, yeah. Yeah. So when you're, when you're deep in the tail and into periods where you don't have any prior, prior analog, then you, as you say, you sort of slow it down and whatever, but it ends up being... There's some craftsmanship there, and you're you know you're you're leaning a little bit more heavily on experience and the and the true objective of the fund, which is if this is if this is the big one, then I want to have a little bit on still to to give investors what they need against the balance of their book because the balance of their book is getting, getting fully destroyed. impacted by this yeah. by the big one, right? Which is, exactly, which is neat. yeah, yeah. Rodrigo, you're, you're muted, muted you're I think. You're muted. I don't know what's going on. Can I take out the craftsmanship part? This I missed it because my wife had a question. Um, do you did you this phase shift period where you slow things down? Was this craftsmanship happening as the coronavirus was hitting, or is was this pre? Um, no, no, no. We we did the exact part? same thing. The exact same model was in play in December of eighteen and January of nineteen. December of eighteen. Um, we, we hit phase shift. We were up 8% in December of 18. And January of 19, when S&P rallied all the way 10%, we, had, we were mostly call loaded, uh, but not as many because we had slow bought and, and we were up 3 or 4%. It, literally the same thing happened. It was the same model, the same trading. Um, it wasn't as perfect. Um, June, we made a little bit of money on the, in the or sorry, in April, uh, but not as much um, as we did in January of 19. Uh, but it's, so no, the model was in place. It had done it times before and it did it again um and so the, yeah so no this is what this is what we built many years ago and this is what we've been doing for years this was the idea and the the, the other point i want to make is at some point you, you you said this mike is that um oh sorry adam you said this uh, was that there was at some point you have to infuse experience right so probabilities are probabilities but when vix hits 100 and and the s&p's down 30 percent in two weeks I've been in the market for 25 years. I'm like, okay, I understand it can go more. I understand vol can go higher. But at this point, vol is negative skewed and the market is positive skewed, right? So <laughs> I, I'm going to take that bet. Um, and, and it's not that I overrode the system. It's that the system was do had the design of that. If in, in other words, none of us believe the market's going to zero. So if your basic premise is we believe that any market crash is finished at 50% off. Let's just take that assumption. So now we know where to end that slow sell. And so had the market corrected to 52%, we got no puts left. Sorry, guys, because that was our knowledge experience end of the tail, right? right? And I'm willing to live with that because I think anything more is so ridiculous as, as it would be VIX going to 180, 
right? Um, so therefore, we put in, we infuse our own experience, and and that makes it work even better. So, if you don't mind, because we're a bunch of quant nerds too, I, I, like you've used the word phase shift a couple of times. Can you dig into the mechanics of how you observe that or identify it? Or is if and if it's this is like part of the proprietary stuff, then we can lean away too. I just I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is uh, part of the proprietary stuff, but it's. Uh, let me think of a way to describe. All of what we're doing is is generally probabilistic, right? So we're looking at distributions and shapes of distributions. We're looking at the the, the broad market in general, so the S and P. We're looking at the vol of the market, right? Um, and IV, so realized and implied. Um, and then we're looking at volavol, right? So if you if you take these four sets of distributions, and when, when they all let's, I'm going to simplify it now. If each of those sets just pass two sigmas on one side, then you're in phase shift. That's that, that's not precisely what we do, but that's the idea. Is everything's within its band, and we're trading normally at our at our scalping cadence that is comfortable. Everything starts to look wacky, and we say, oh, we're in phase shift. The the beauty of it is not that it's a perfect signal. It's that more often than not, when all that stuff starts, when all those red flags start going up, something's brewing, right? And if it didn't brew, no problem. We we take it back off, and we we go back to normal, and no pain, right? If it did brew, if the brewing does lead to something, then don't, we're well prepared. And so that's the beauty of, uh, again, it's, it's being not just having a convex instrument, but being convex in philosophy is that getting like getting up to bat ready to go because things are looking weird, right? So that, that philosophy aligns with optionality is you're going to take those bets. So what, part of what we do in phase shift is also scale up. Right, so we could be wrong and vol crushes, and we get a little bit hurt because we scaled up. But if we're right just once, it'll pay for nine other times that we scaled up that we weren't right. So I say, if things are brewing, go for it. So it's just just to sum it up, so it's it's the con- it's defined by the conditional relationships between realized vol, applied vol, and vol of vol, and you can sort of observe or quantify. Um, different states for, for, for those conditional distributions and identify when you're more likely in this type of phase or this type of regime and the market behaves a certain way or has a higher probability of behaving a certain way and the optimal way of positioning the portfolio is informed by you know the way that the market usually behaves in that regime. That is that yeah i mean you could you could think of it as a transitional probability right so if you you go i i don't believe vol is one distribution vol is a low vol regime and a mid vol regime and a high vol regime right and they they mm-hmm. all have different vol of vol right mm-hmm. so they they all have different widths right if you want to think of it that way so w- what is the transition probability of going from low vol regime to mid vol regime yep. right and so you've 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 come up with that and so with that's picked up, now you're transitioned. Now you're in this vol regime, and so now not only are you using a different distribution because vol of vol is why is more, right? But you're so that that translates to a different scaling rate, which for us is a different cadence of trading. Yep. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. great. So how how should investors think? I, I ask this to everybody who manages a a um, 
a, a nonlinear or convex type strategy. H- how should investors think about sizing position to your, to, to, maybe not to your fund, let's sort of generalize it, but to to your type of fund or rights, right skewed, nonlinear profile type funds in general? Is it is it purely an empirical analysis? Is it is it looking at the historical distribution of the fund versus the the portfolio? Or seems to me that again, we go back to this sort of small sample problem where you don't quite get the information that you need from that type of analysis. How do you think about this problem or coach investors on how to think about it? Yeah, that, that's one of the um, big questions we always get, and unfortunately, it's it's a subjective utility function, right? So everybody's pain threshold is different. That's the problem, right? And and so my my first question to people is, well, how much are you long, right? Are you are you hedging a market neutral book, or are you hedging a hundred percent long equity portfolio? That's a that's A and B, right? In different landscapes, right? So that should that's that's uh, I guess a, a major bifurcation. Now you step out of that, say, well, regardless of which one of those you have, what what is your pain threshold? Are you willing to do, do you allow for a ten percent drawdown, and that's fine for you, or not you, but your investor base? If you're a fund of funds, right? Is that okay for you? Uh, and so we we just try to go through that range of questions and then come up with and I mean, there's because that's the problem for some people they don't need to be hedged up to ten percent down, but they don't want to ever have a 30% drawdown like what happened uh, six months ago. Uh, so that means you know you need this much. But if you're someone who is uh, like what I did initially was you have a, a tight market neutral portfolio, you're trying to make 60, 70 bips a month, right? And steady. And the one risk you have are these negative skew events. And so you want that, whatever size drawdown that is, you want that to be a flat month. How do I do that? That's a very particular analysis. So there, we have no choice but to be a little bit empirical and say, okay, if we take all market neutral events, and there was the 2011 crack, and the you know go down the list of the quant quakes, you know what what were they all roughly in magnitude, and how much do we need of this to offset that, and how much bleed will that be to your average month? Right, that's a pretty simple quant to do. That's how we would approach it, but it's really subjective to the to the party that we're speaking to. So, so on that note, we're actually having this yeah. discussion earlier this morning internally about how these solutions do not apply to different tiers of investors in the same way. So, for example, absolutely, yeah, the, what you're putting together, the the absolute return fund you're doing, I'm sure can't manage in the same way with 100 billion dollars as it can with a couple hundred million dollars, right? And so there's. There are certain classes of investors that can benefit tremendously from alpha strategies like ours or any, any guests we've had. You know, you can have a really strong allocation, a combination of them, and really provide some unique idiosyncratic uh, contributions to your portfolio and so on. But as you get bigger and bigger to the mid-tier pensions, to the largest pension plans, you just talked about a bespoke mandate. And what we often hear in the space of uh, tail protection is, well, you, we can minimize the bleed. Um, by doing all this fancy stuff. Is that true? If you get the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan coming to you and saying, I want you to hedge out my full portfolio, what what could you do? I mean, is it is there anything that doesn't have a bleed that you could do for them? Or are they just going to have to accept that bleed? Um, is Ontario on the line? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, who, who, who knows? If you are, please listen in um, uh, or perk up your ears. Um, no, so my answer is that what we do is, is number one, it's very scalable. We're, we're trading SPX optionality and SPX straddle and, and S&P constituents that are not trading daily, rolling um, more around a monthly frequency. So we, we have tremendous scalability. I, 100 billion is a lot, of course. But uh, we, I, I don't see any issue with what we do up to many billions, right? Um, so I, I don't know where that, that top is for market impact, but it's the, the most liquid options trading is SPX front month at the money, which is generally where we're trading. Uh, so we're, 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 at, um, we're certainly uh, highly scalable. That said, is, so you're saying, you know, can, can we do what we do and not have bleed and, and be convex? And uh, that was Corey Hofstein's question earlier. Like, if, if so, that's the holy grail. And I like to say, I'd, you know, if I had a grail here, I'd raise it. I just have a mug, so I'm going to raise my holy mug. Um, but th- that's what I believe we've done. I mean, I, yes, that's yeah. said the question to is not whether you've done it. The question is whether you can do it at large scale. I think just to put so, some context so got, around it, that was my it, answer. Right? Is if we're trading scalable instruments, I'm. Tra- am I, you, I'd ask you that question. Is like if 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 we're making money scalping SPX, can we scalp SPX for a hundred million or, or or five billion? Sure. I mean, it's again. I'm not selling the whole thing that day. I'm selling X percent. So if on today I, I bought, I needed to buy two percent more SPX options. I'm buying at the money options on the SPX. I need. Two percent more of a hundred million—it's two million. That's that's nothing, right? And so our straddle can scale, and what we do—the different components that I've talked about throughout this podcast—is is we believe and we've seen generates positive returns on average outside of outlier events. That was the design of the portfolio. I'm not saying we can make money every month. No one can, right? Or I guess certain people can, but not us, right? Uh, Renaissance can, perhaps. I don't know. Um, so I'm, I, you know, we, we all have our limitations. I understand our limitations. We, our tough environment is when vol is coming down. That's our hardest environment. But in a ordinary vol environment in 2017, vol was low. We made money. There was no crack that year. There was not a single mega downside event. But we just traded the vol and we were up nine, ten percent. I don't remember the exact number, but it was an average year. So we are built to make money in most regimes, but still be convex when markets collapse. And I, I, and as far as can we do that with scale? Yes, I believe we can. I don't think. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think Rodrigo may may not have fully communicated the 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 context. I think we sure our our discussion was around: is there anything that the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund or, or the Canada pension plan or Calpers or or these huge funds can do to hedge their beta risk or diversify their beta risk with active um, with active allocations of any type. And I think we sort of concluded that the sheer scale of the hundreds of billions of dollars that they manage necessitates the allocation to just major cyclical beta risk, right? And and so I think, you know, we, we were saying, look, I, yeah, see, our, I see the question. Our now. strategy is not useful to the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund because we can't run five hundred billion dollars trading I, I at, your question at now. the frequency okay. we trade. Right? Sure. So that, I, that's the context. Yeah, I, I didn't capture that before. So yeah, at that size, I don't know if it's worth even thinking about because also the sovereign wealth. They, I mean, they don't have investors they're answering to, right? It's there for them. The market cracking is a chance to just. 
buy more equities, right? So I, I, it's a completely different mindset. It, they're not answering to someone and they want to just keep on putting money to work, right? It's, it's the same as, you know, I mean, there's m- many big institutions that are like that. That's not who we or all of this tail investing world is for. We are for people who are answering to investors that are managing pools of capital that, that, are, that have a lot of other strategies in them, which typically everything is is um, uh, uh, subject to negative skew, is subject to market meltdowns. And so they need offsets because they have to answer and produce statements every month to their right. investor pool. So that's a, that's you, a different Adam, class of the market. Thank you for reframing. You're totally right. And thank you. That's, that's kind of where I was getting at. One of the interesting things yeah. that came away from that is that you really have these large pension plans that they can't, right? And when I speak to the CIOs, they're like, listen, we have, we can have a massive bleed and then piss everybody off along the way to get some sort of hopeful tail protection. If we get enough, if, if, if the counterparty risk that we sold the OTC from or bought the OTC from isn't going to blow sure. up. Um, so we just rather take beta, right? And what happens is you have these massive pension plans that are like the guardians of the way money should be managed. And you, you see the mid-sized pension plans and you know, multifamily offices look to them and say, well, I need to be like that, right? Like that's their benchmark. And what we're, what we're trying to say to people is like, no, as you get smaller, you actually have tons more options. You actually can get that type of um, uh, possibly, you know, the holy grail that we were discussing or alpha strategies that are truly, you know. Uh, yeah, you should be focused in areas of, of the market and strategies where those large pensions definitionally cannot go. And because either regulatorily it, or, yeah. They're like, well, pensions don't use hedge, uh, hedge like, tail protection. What, like, why should we? It was because you're not a, you're not a massive multi-billion dollar hedge uh, uh, pension plan. Right. Yeah. Friend, you can do yeah, a lot more. You of, can, of course, but not just so pensions don't use them, but pensions also worry about their liabilities, right? So they they, they don't have that, but they, they've had the benefit of a 20-year bull market. Uh, let, let's say there had been a different path, and now they're coming up against contingent liabilities that they can't cover. Are are they now thinking and and and, and being as as um uh, proud of their achievements as they were before? So it's all of this is on the heels of the empirical view that we're all looking at that the market's gone up for 20 years. That's great. But I don't know that that's happening for the next 20 years. No, no, and we're on the same that, page. Uh, what's that? hundred percent agree. We're on the, we're, yeah. we're all, yeah. I think in violent agreement here. It's just yeah. that the main point was that these big pension plans don't really have any other option, right? It's they're HODLers, right? Because they don't have any, any opportunity to they you know, CalPERS can't hedge away all of its, beta risk. <laughs> because if they do, they will be the tail that wags the dog, right? So absolutely. It's it, they're in it for for the long haul and the typical small pension or endowment or family office, they should definitionally be looking for ways to invest that CalPERS and the CPP and Ontario Teachers and and the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund are not investing because they can't invest and and accrue any meaningful diversification from going in different directions. But your typical family office has a wide variety of different opportunities to diversify 
and seek alpha that these big institutions don't have. And it's just, a, it's this strange phenomenon that so many smaller institutions try to model themselves after these larger institutions the gold when they should actually be going in the opposite when it's direction. it's a different objective. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Now I fully capture what you're saying and I couldn't agree more. And I like your word. I violently agree. Um, uh, but so I, it's funny. I think of like the, the adage from 2008 was too big to fail. Um, so the other side of that is too big to hedge. Right. Uh, And so that's where we are. It's, I mean, in that landscape. Um, So we're we're not talking to those people for that reason is that it's it's too big to hedge. Yeah. Gentlemen, I have, I have a dinner party that I, that I uh, promised I'd be on time for. So you guys keep going. Nobody wants to hear about your excuses, but that's okay. Cause I have a good dinner. Yeah. (laughs) See ya. Um, well, we covered a lot of ground. I mean, I don't, yeah. Mike, I don't know if you have any other questions or Wayne, if you have any other things you wanted to hit. Yeah, you want to closing remarks, Wayne? Um, no, I honestly, uh, it was, this was very enjoyable. I mean, there was no, um, before we got on, you said it, uh, Adam, it was just going to be free flowing. Uh, so my only comment is that was a fantastic free flow. I like, it was really good. I, I, I loved the, um, the, the, where the conversation went and I hope it was insightful for everyone. And uh, that's it. Yeah. So happy, happy to be on. Yeah, yeah, tremendous it. conversation. Learned a yeah. lot and and shared a lot. And um, hopefully we get a chance to do this again sometime. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to take the hit and make sure everyone listening, if you can, just uh, like, review, subscribe. Uh, make sure you get your reminder notifications in YouTube about uh, who we're having on. Who do we have on next week? Do you do you remember? I, I should be better at this. Yeah, before um, mentioning it, you should probably know who it I is. Should I should probably <laughs> look it up, but, but I can I can look it up with a, a bit of. Oh wait, no, next week is the the Thanksgiving. Next week is Thanksgiving. That's why. So, we, so yeah. we're gonna try and we might be able to wrangle something with a Wednesday call uh, with somebody. But we'll um, again, good reason to stay tuned and hit the subscribe button. And again, lots of uh, um, likes and comments are very helpful. Uh, for for building the uh, the audience and getting on great guests like Wayne and whatnot. So thanks to everyone thank who showed Wayne. up today and asked questions yeah. and uh, participated. Appreciate that so as well. Too. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right. Great. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks all. Right. Have a all great weekend. See ya. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast will be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.